If you have ever asked yourself, how do I raise my child to be responsible when they grow up? Then listen up, because today we have Chet Hafner here from Love and Logic. Love and Logic already teaches parents how to raise kids that are responsible and full of discipline since ages. And the reason I came on was actually because two podcast members have already suggested that this is the course and program to go as a parent. Thank you, first of all, for coming on to the podcast. I was looking so forward to talking with you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Every parent wants to raise confident, responsible, disciplined child. How do we raise our children to be responsible? Well, I think the easiest thing we can do to build responsibility is give kids a lot of practice and as early as possible and as often as is reasonable, we want to hand them in a nice way. We want to hand them problems for them to solve. Because honestly, that's what a lot of responsibility boils down to is, is solving the problems that we create or solving problems that just come up in life. And I think about my kids, two of mine are, you know, entering the, the workforce now. And it's already apparent that if, if they're able to solve problems, it's going to really help them make money and, uh, and be successful. You know, these are the people who get promoted and and quickly become, uh, you know, managers and, and just, you know, if you can solve problems for people, uh, you'll always be able to, to uh, be at least financially successful out there in the world. So we Absolutely. start, we start by handing them little problems, even when they're tiny, you know, that they're, maybe they're trying to climb up to the, the slide, you know, on the playground and they're struggling a little bit. First, we resist that helicopter urge to uh, hover over there and, and lift them up to the top. But if they turn to us, you know, uh, we might just say, well, what are you going to do? And, you know, that question, what are you going to do or what's your plan or how do you plan to solve this? Some version of that question becomes super valuable in building responsibility. What if you would have, a, let's say, 10-year-old child and until now you were more wanting to take all the problems from your child and now you transition? <laughs> well, first, I better realize they're not going to thank me. Yeah, if I've been uh, overdoing it and, and solving. And that's a perfectly good instinct, by the way. We shouldn't uh, beat ourselves up if we've been doing that or if we're always tempted to do that. It's, it's part of just being a, a parent or, or any adult who takes care of kids. You look over and they're having a problem and you know how to solve it and you want to you wanna just rush over there and help. But in Love and Logic, we say we want kids to make affordable mistakes. And by the same token, we want to hand back affordable problems. So for a 10-year-old, a good piece of love and logic is you get to use your own judgment and common sense. We don't, uh, we don't outlaw those things. Uh, so for my 10-year-old, I'm going to use my own judgment, common sense, and say, okay, what kind of problems would I consider affordable? You know, maybe she stays up too late playing a video game and she's tired the next day. All right, that's probably affordable. What about contact stranger over the internet? not affordable. So I'm just going to be a, a kind of a mistake evaluator. And then hopefully on the front end, I'm evaluating mistakes that my 10 year old might make and saying, okay, is that going to be an affordable one or not? And uh, I say this a lot. If I'm on the fence, if I'm not sure, I'd err on the side of safety because there's going to be plenty of smaller problems to hand back or smaller mistakes for them to make. Um, the big one that comes up at this age is grades where, you know, say they're in fourth or fifth grade, they start, 
experimenting with maybe not doing their best work or not turning in work or trying to get the parent to, to own all the homework. And this is one where parents really struggle. You know, is it okay to let them get a lower grade on a project when they're in fourth grade? <laughs> and I, I, in my house, we considered those to be affordable mistakes. We didn't, uh, we did not manage our kids' grades and schoolwork when they were at that level. Precedes that, that you actually trust your child to be able to solve it. That's what you're telling the child. Exactly. You're sending a message that says you are capable. So even asking the question, even if they don't come up with some wonderful solution, when we do this, uh, this love and logic idea of lovingly handing back problems to them, even if they don't come up with some amazing solution, just the fact that we ask them sends this you are capable message. Okay. And what if your child would be lying to you? A short answer from Love and Logic with lying and other dishonest behavior. I think we all have this fantasy as adults that we've watched a lot of, uh, you know, detective shows. And we think there's going to be this aha moment where we kind of, uh, we have the goods, you know, on the kid. And then the kid says, okay, I was lying. And they capitulate and they admit it and then they feel bad and then they never lie again. And uh, I don't know if that's been anyone else's experience, but I, I've never had that experience with a kid. And I worked with, uh, I worked with delinquent kids, kids that were court ordered into placement for many years. And I obviously dealt with a lot of lying. And what I found that, that I had to let go of that fantasy, first of all, um, and not turn all of these moments into some big, you know, trial or, or detective movie moment. Um, it was better to just be real matter of fact with kids and say, um, it's okay to be honest and say, you know, I don't believe you. Um, taking, and this is easier said than done, but taking some of the emotion out of it, um, we get, I think a lot of, if, if most parents are like me, we get really emotional when, when we get lied to it. It triggers something deep within us that's really upsetting. Yeah. Um, Part of what helped me, uh, Charles Fay, my boss, Dr. Charles Fay, talked about developmental lying. In, in other words, when they're little kids, you're going to hear some tall tales. And part of that is truly just their experimentation with their own imagination and their experimentation with how people respond when they say things like that. So, you know, your little kindergartner was outside and he says, I just jumped uh, as high as the roof. <laughs> and... Um, I don't want to get into this big, no, you did not, and turn it into that. Because un unfortunately, kids crave our emotion. And especially when they're smaller, um, sometimes it doesn't matter if it's good emotion or bad emotion. And we can get into this cycle of it's a way for them to really get uh, a lot of emotion out of us. So he recommended, uh, Charles Fay recommended, just a more matter of fact, like, oh, well, that's a story. You know, it'd be fun if that were true or something along those lines so that we don't turn it into this great big fight. Now, when we get into the more, what he'd call instrumental lying, where there's a purpose behind it besides just telling a tall tale. So these are usually the denials. Um, did you brush your teeth? And I've already felt the toothbrush and it's, the bristles are dry as a bone. <laughs> Which number one, Love and Logic would say, let's not even get into that. Let's not even set our kids up to have this. We think sometimes that we're doing good by catching them in a lie, but we can get into a, a pretty destructive cycle um, 
partly because what happens as human beings, our defenses go up. And uh, are we smarter or dumber when we get defensive? Dumber. <laughs> Lots dumber. dumber. Lot yeah, dumber. You don't have to watch too many reality shows to realize yeah. that uh, as human beings, we get a lot dumber when our defenses go up. And that's the last thing I want. So again, I think partly for some of us, it's because we watch too many TV shows. And so we say, did you brush your teeth knowing the kid didn't? And then the kid says, yes, I did. And we say, ha, gotcha. And we want to, we, we, our instinct for some reason is to do that. Love and logic would say, actually, let's not do that. Let's not get into, you know, this, this scenario where we've set our kid up to lie. So I went and felt the, the bristles and I know they didn't brush their teeth. And then I want to let a logical consequence do more of the teaching than my lecturing or my anger so then the kid says, hey, mom, can I have a cookie? And we say, oh, you know, cookies are for kids who protect their teeth with, uh, with brushing. Ah, and okay. so, uh, you know, we'll, we'll try again some other time. But uh, it's really important that, that we're protecting our teeth with brushing. And the kid might still try to argue with you. If they're worth, if they're worth keeping, they're probably going to argue with you. Oh, I have been, I have been brushing my teeth. And, and we probably are going to try to avoid getting into that again that trial argument kind of a, of a scenario um, when kids are arguing with us we like just the letter m um, in, in the english language it's wonderful because the 13th letter of the alphabet's the letter m and it's really useful you can just uh well you know what sound it makes mm. there you go you just put a few of them together and it actually helps if you sound a little bit tired and a little bit sad, which uh, most of us are, can do pretty easily. <laughs> and so when kids try to argue with us, we just kind of go brain dead and say, mm, but I have been brushing my teeth. Mm, this is no fair. Mm, but you're mean. Mm. And they're trying to hook us. You know, they're trying to, uh, to hook us into that argument. What we really need is for them to have no success doing that. Uh, when kids have zero success with something, they give up pretty easily. The problem is if they can get a little bit of success, then it gets reinforced much the way that a slot machine. <laughs> so I don't want to be the slot machine where they keep trying to push the button and trying to win over and over again. Yeah. I want them to have zero success manipulating me into some sort of an argument. And so I try to be not defensive, not put a lot of emotion into it. Again, this is easier said than done. Yeah. And it takes some practice on our part. But just go to that kind of happy place, brain dead, and just repeat them. There are a lot of phrases in Love and Logic. Then you'll hear the phrase, I love you too much to argue. That's a, that's a real popular one. Consequence, do, do the teaching. Rather than, my instinct is for me to give a big, long lecture, and I do all this teaching. But, you know, the next time a kid wants, uh, they want candy or they want something that's, that's sugary, and we just say, with as much empathy as we can muster, that's part of Love and Logic, too, is delivering. When we have bad news to deliver, we deliver it with empathy and we say, oh, this is, you know, this is sad, but not going not gonna to be given candy until we do a better job of protecting our teeth. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're keep in mind, this all started my kids being lazy and wants to say he brushed his teeth, but he didn't. And so the trap there, the very common trap, did you brush your teeth? Yes. Okay. I know you're lying. And then we get into this big power struggle. Yeah. And it doesn't take long for kids to learn that we ultimately can't control whether or not the truth comes out of their mouth. We can apply an awful lot of pressure, but in the meantime, that can be pretty destructive to the relationship. If they're spending an awful lot of time in defensive mode, rather than us just being kind of more matter of fact and, and 
in, in love and logic, a lot of times we're just solving a problem. We try to not take it as personally. Um, so these kids I worked with uh, at the Center for Troubled Teens, they got caught shoplift. And, you know, rather than a huge power struggle, just the next time we went somewhere, we just didn't take them. We said, we're only going to be taking kids that we don't have to worry about things going missing. And they said, that's not fair. And we just said, mm. <laughs> and so again, the, the consequence, our actions, or in some cases, our inact is what really does the teaching. That makes sense. In one of the books, it talked about self-image, so that there's two types of children. The one who looks in the mirror and says, wow, that's a really great guy, and others will like that person too. And the second is, you know, oh gosh, who is that? Look at him. Nobody will like that. How can you build the image of a child, say, if you have a toddler, but then also in later stages, having a child who doesn't have a good self-image? What do you do? Yeah, the self-concept is, is a tricky thing because our brains, we really like to accept things that we already believe. You'll notice this if you see people arguing about you know, politics or something on uh, social media. We reject information that goes against what we already believe. And we really look for and zero in on information that supports what we already believe. So yeah. if, I, if I'm dealing with a kid of any age that the self-concept is already low, and keep in mind, we have a different self-concept about, about each thing. So I have a self-concept about how, how well I sing uh, which is not very, not very good. And then I have a self-concept about how good of a driver I am. And I have a self-concept about all these. Things. So what we have a tendency to do is we want to say the opposite. This is where praise, if you've ever had praise backfire, where you say, you did a great job. And the kid goes, no, I didn't. It was off. The problem with praise, it works great when it, when it agrees with what the brain is already thinking uh you know if, if that kid's brain already believes the picture is, that, that she drew is beautiful then you say that's a beautiful picture and her brain's going to go yep it is and now the praise had its desired effect but where we run into problems with self-concept is we say things that their brain fights off or disagrees with or says nah and so one of the ways to avoid that is say things that are just objectively true so we used to have to give quizzes to kids and if, if they got eight questions right i would just say hey you got these eight questions right instead of saying good job or great job and then if they even got one right i might ask them the question how did you do that so the kid does something re remotely good you can describe it objectively you know you got number two right how did you do that of course the first answer you're going to get from most kids is i don't know and then we like to offer these options we might say well have you been studying did you work hard did you try your best you know something that involves effort some attribution that involves effort and then we we kind of get them to pick one and one way to do this is if with when once they're old enough to read you can put them on cards and then when they do something well you can just point to the cards and say which one was it and then they'll point to one and you say i, I would put my hands in my pockets you know and say which one and then the kid has to say uh, i worked hard and now <laughs> ching, his brain heard that right his brain hears something so our brains can reject a lot of things and ignore a lot of things but when when we hear our voice say it it becomes an affirmation and a part of our reality that it's hard for it's hard to fight off us just the same as when you look at a picture if, if you find an old class picture from when you're a kid you can usually find your face really fast because something in your brain activates and says oh that's a that's us that's important so yeah. the same thing is, is happening with a kid's voice you get them to say it 
Now this is different than saying, no, say you're, say you're wonderful. Say, I'm not doing that. I'm going to actually kind of trick them into saying it. So again, the, <laughs> they do something well, we describe it, we point it out, we notice it and we say, how did you do that? And then when we get past the, I don't know, uh, I like this for, I don't know. Uh, if you did know, which one would you, which one would you say? Or if you did know, which one would you pick? And they'll fall for that some of the time. But so my short answer is let's get them talking about strengths. Let's get them talking about successes that are very specific. Um, if you're having praise backfire, if you're trying to raise a kid's self-concept and it seems to be backfiring, see if you can't take the judgment out of the, the statements that you're making. So instead of saying, that's a beautiful picture, you might say, I noticed that you used a lot of yellow. Or if you say, you did a really good job on that, you might say instead, hey, I noticed that you've been working on that for, for 30 minutes. Just something that's objectively true, then their brain has to agree with it. And that, that's better for the self-concept. Ah, wow. So be more specific and objective. Yeah, so take, the, uh, take the judgment out of your, your praise. And we, we call it noticing. In Love and Logic will say notice instead of praise. And the noticing okay. is, it's good for kids for, because we take an interest in them. Everybody, we want to be noticed, right? Right. Uh, part of the reason social media is such a big deal is everyone's kind of saying, hey, look at me. You know, here's yeah. my food. Here's my, here's my vacation pictures. Yeah. Um, so we're meeting this need that, that's powerful that, that kids have to be noticed. But we're also doing it in a way that doesn't make them feel embarrassed or um, c conflicted with what they already believe. So once again, don't hear me saying praise is awful. Never, never use yeah. praise. Use it when their brain, when you're pretty confident that their brain is going to agree and not fight it off. But if you're not sure if it's an area where the kid doesn't feel strong, and that's usually where we're trying to build them up, right? Is in an area of uh, we're like, oh, we want to tell them they did a good job, even though they don't feel very good about it. Notice the the specific things that are objectively true, and leave out the great, wonderful, super duper. How do you further the self concept in a social context with other children involved? Absolutely, I will. I will sometimes teach this same technique to the kids. In other words, I'm with a group of peers. What do uh, what do kids like? They like to be noticed. Also, you know, if you walk out to a playground and they're playing, they'll say, "Hey, look at me!" Right? So. I've taught kids to notice things about their peers that, that are going to be, again, not threatening or embarrassing if this kid's wearing new tennis shoes. The same as an adult, you know, you, you could really endear yourself. You see a kid with new tennis shoes that they're pretty happy about and you say, hey, new shoes. So that we teach the kid the same uh, idea in terms of noticing things because their peers are going to like that. Their peers like to be noticed. And it's just kind of a, an easy way to, to ease kids into more positive peer relationships. I also, you know, when they're real little, I like to practice the wrong way to do things. So, you know, we had siblings that were close in age and they would rough each other up sometimes. And we, so we, you might take even a stuffed animal when they're real little and say, uh, what would be a not nice way to play with this, you know, bear or tiger or whatever? <laughs> All right. Now, what would be a nicer way? And we have them, you know, do the wrong way and then practice the right <laughs> way. Same with saying please or thank you. I mean, honestly, just basic courtesy. And that's a great head start for a lot of kids to be well-liked by their peers. As far as their, uh, their confidence, not feeling as confident when they're around their peers, I think... Again, most people's instinct would be to try to fix the weaknesses 
So if you're weak in a certain area, your parents want to come along and build you up in that weak area. What we've found is the most successful and a lot of times the happiest people in life really fly on their strengths. And so noticing things, again, that are strengths that the kid happens to be good at uh, versus spending so much time. This is where school is really hard for some kids because the way it can feel is what the school did is find out what I was not good at and then spend a whole lot of time working on this thing that I was not good at. Yeah. And honestly, would any of us like to be treated that way? You know, no. if you went to a, start a new job and the very first thing they did is find out what you're not good at and then you spend a ton of time on that, probably not going to like that job very much. Um, the people who love their jobs get to do things that they feel good at and good about, you know, often. And so I, I, would, I would take that same strategy and maybe not worry so much about areas where, where my son or daughter doesn't feel strong. And I'd spend way more time and, and emphasis on those things where they do feel strong. Mm. What would be a story of your life, Chet, where you went through a challenging situation or questions with your children? I'll tell you, uh, we, when we adopted the twins, they were age three. And I was just starting to work for Love and Logic. I didn't have... Uh, full grasp of all the concepts uh, but I was most frustrated with my little girl because she didn't so I have a son and a daughter they're, they're boy girl twins my little girl just didn't want to eat and she had been neglected so they were malnourished and she really needed to eat and so we used to just sit there and say eat eat and we'd get into these big power struggles and I felt pretty helpless because she's this tiny little three-year-old person and I'm supposed to be good at this stuff and I couldn't make her eat. <laughs> and yeah. so my friends at the Love and Logic Institute said, well, you wish that she would eat, but you can't control that. What can you control? And this was a huge aha for me, not just in this situation, but kind of in all of life where I realized, what can I control about this situation? Well, we can control what, what food is served and we can control when it's served, and we can control where she sits and where she sits in relation to other people. It's amazing she would eat better if she sat next to me than if she sat next to her twin brother that has ADHD <laughs> for some yeah. reason. The order in which food is served, the presentation, we could control her access to snacks and things in between meals. We could control what fun thing might be going on after the meal. All these things. It felt helpless, like there's nothing I can do. I can't make her eat. But then they helped me find, for this wish, they helped me find a bunch of controls. In other words, for the thing that I wished I could control, I was able to find some things about that situation that I actually could control. And it changed everything. Um, I started viewing a lot of problems that way. Okay, here's the wish. There's got to be some things about this wish, even if it's just my own attitude or how much I fight with the kid about this issue. There's always something that I can control. And it just, it lowered my stress. Um, good news is Terry, my daughter, 16 and healthy now and, and eats just fine. Congratulations. <laughs> <So> happy ending, <laughs> yeah. Um, Honestly, that that was a big aha for me because I up until that point I was feeling really helpless and really inadequate. Like I don't know if I'm qualified to to raise these little people because I can't. You know, it seems like a very simple thing, and I just can't make it happen. But it, it kind of is a bigger picture. I'm always saying, okay, what can I control about this? Can't control this, but what can what can I control about the situation? I think that's not just for raising children, but help a lot of people. Just asking that question. It's brilliant.
I love it. Absolutely. I mean, usually the other, it's the, the thing I can control has something to do with me. <laughs> yes. If I've had enough coffee, you know, I can control <laughs> my, my attitude or whatever. Uh, usually the thing I can't control has to do with another person, their, their will or their attitude or their behavior. And so that's, that's a big key in love and logic is, is we call them enforceable statements. And so it's things like I allow, you know, or I will, I will provide. If you've got teenagers, I mean, one of your best friends is the statement I'll provide. And then you fill in the blank and then you put in some conditions in there. So I could harangue my teenagers about cell phone use, or I could just say, Hey, I'm going to provide this cell phone for you as long as it doesn't cause a problem. Yes. And I can, and then this is the really mean thing, but I'll go in the other room sometimes and pray for problems so that, uh, <laughs> so that they can learn the logical result or consequence of they abuse this thing and now they've lost it. Uh, my teenage daughter, I, I kid you not, I'm not just saying this, my teenage daughter does not have a cell phone right now because it got taken away because she, it caused a problem, we'll just say. And so um, I, want, I want to be able to set limits like that around things that I can control and whether or not she gets it or has it is the thing that I can control. It's a new view on life, how you view things, how you raise children, I think, because, you know, not, oh, I hope my child doesn't get into trouble or, you know, doesn't get problems and so on and so forth. And now we're already starting to think, so I hope that small problems arise so she can learn how to deal with them. And then exactly that's right? it. get into conflict so she can solve them <laughs> and have some struggle so she can get stronger and have some disappointment so she can be resilient. Absolutely. Okay. So the last question, because we're running out of time already. Incredible. The word emotions, emotions get high on children a lot. So for example, how do we neutralize strong emotions? For example, anger, If we're with our children and they make us angry. What would you say to parents to, because it, as you said before, it's not the best place to make wise decisions or respond in a good way. What do you do if you get peaked? Go-to skill here is, is delay. Um, we'll talk in Love and Logic about delayed consequences or even just delayed conversation. And in my house, sometimes it sounds like this. I'll say, I make better decisions when I'm calm and I'm not calm right now. We'll talk later. Okay. And uh, so I want to buy myself some time. There's this sense that, and it's, it's really a lie. There's a sense that we have to solve everything right now. And uh, I'm really passionate about this idea because, again, working with troubled kids, some of them had been through physical abuse. And I believe a lot of that abuse would have never happened if the adults had taken even just a few minutes to calm down. So there's this, there's, and I'll, I'll say it again, it's a lie that we believe have to handle this right now. Very, very few behaviors do I really need to handle right now. I feel like it. It feels urgent. But in most cases, even if I take a very, very short amount of time, it's amazing what happens with, with time as emotions start to subside a little bit and there's neurochemical switches that switch us back to the smarter part of our brain. <laughs> so 45 seconds, a minute, two minutes, certainly five minutes, I'm, I'm literally raising my IQ, get out of that anger state, out of that emotional state. So we're real big in Love and Logic on delaying conversations, delaying consequences, delaying outcomes until we're at least calm enough to maybe think a little straighter. Mm, wonderful. People listening can hear how much information. I mean, we could talk for four, five, ten hours more probably and still get new information. 
So where do people go now? If where do they go to get find out more products, programs? You bet. Our website is loveandlogic.com. So and is spelled out, loveandlogic.com. And on that website, there's a ton of free stuff. We also have the ability, I know you have listeners all over the place. If someone's uh, able to call an 800 number in the United States, we actually have live real people that answer the phone if they call our 800 number. But if they're not, we also have an email. All of that you can find again on the website, loveandlogic.com. We also have a fantastic Facebook page that has lots and lots of really wonderful people who, who don't just read our posts every day, but they ask questions and uh, we, we post a lot of video there. I have a YouTube channel as well. Basically all the social media, I think, I think we're on. Unless they've invented a new one uh, in the last 24 hours. <laughs> but people can find us. But it's always Love and Logic spelled out. And then it's Love and Logic Institute on, uh, on Facebook. Perfect. So people, go and check it out. It's just value pure. And thank you, Chet, for being on the podcast with us today. It was so much great value in all of the, what you said. Oh, thank you if very much. It's really a pleasure. I wouldn't stop if I don't have to. Thank you. Have a wonderful day.